Hello, this is Elizabeth Ficken, and I invite you to study the Bible with me. In this season's podcast, I'll share the lectures that I've given as I've taught through the book of Micah to the women's Bible study at my church. The short book of Micah is prophecy which declares God's judgment against injustice, which will prompt us to examine how we live our lives and treat others. The book of Micah also declares God's overwhelming mercy to forgive sins, and it unveils the Lord's extraordinary plans for the nation of Israel during the Millennial Kingdom when Jesus Christ reigns supreme. Micah's name means, Who is like God? The only correct answer to that question is, No one. The message of Micah will lead us to know more about the character of our God and Savior, and will lead us to honor and adore them as they deserve. Today, I want to talk about the justice of God, continue talking about the justice of God, and consider that it is a love story for us. That may be a strange way to think of the justice of God as as it creates a love story, but it just seemed appropriate, especially since yesterday was Valentine's Day. And we're in part two of the story, Happy Ever After. Well, the justice of God is the foundation of his throne. That's from Psalm 97 too. The justice of God, the basis of his sovereignty. He is just. So I want to give you a comprehensive summary, as much as I can, about the justice of God. And this is based on what we have studied in our lessons so far. I've tried to collect the words and phrases and things that we have handled in various lessons. So first of all, God has declared his justice, and we're calling that declaration his judgments, the mishpat. God has declared what is right and wrong. He has given the instructions by which we are to live. He watches and holds everyone accountable to his standard. So this makes him the lawmaker, the lawgiver. And remember that all of his law, all the instruction that he gives us is based on loving God and loving people. The Ten Commandments. God is not only the lawgiver, he is the law enforcer. He's the law enforcement. He carries out all aspects of his judging. And now we have a verb, shafat, to judge. God, in his judging, does everything that this word means. He governs, he leads, he decides, he rewards, he punishes, he judges all aspects of life and I looked at I was just thinking of how can I talk about well I can't talk about all aspects of life but this is life at home and in the community and I didn't want to separate religious aspects because your love of the Lord should show up at home and it should show up in the community your love of people should show up in the home and the community it's not there's not a separation of religion outside of this aspect of life. He also judges all aspects of life on earth and in the invisible spiritual well. And we have not been talking about that, but I thought I should mention it. 
We've seen a simple definition of justice from Micah 3, 2. The leaders were hating good and loving evil. So we turned that around and said a simple definition of justice is loving good and hating evil. And then based on Micah 3, 9, justice and perverting what is right when we turn that around what's the right thing to do love justice and do what is right don't pervert it and this is what God does he loves good and hates evil he loves justice and he does not pervert it we've also seen that God's justice and his righteousness and his uprightness are very closely related and this also is from Psalm 97 too. These terms of God's justice and righteousness can almost be switched out in Scripture. They are that close. Righteousness in the Hebrew is the noun tzedekah. Did I give you? Yep. And then the verb is tzedek, to be righteous, to be just, to conform to an ethical or moral standard. Now, God is not conforming to a standard. He is the standard. He gives the standard. So he is righteous and tells us what is right. So we are to conform to God's standard, and that is righteousness in our life when we follow and obey what he says. God's standard, just a reminder, his mishpat. So now I'm tossing these words all together. According to the Old Testament, being tzedakah, righteous, is based on obeying mishpat, God's judgment. And we have the word uprightness. We saw that that's the Hebrew word yashar. And it originally meant straight or level or smooth. Think of a straight level road and how nice it is to walk on a level path. And you're not worried about tripping over rocks or roots or going the wrong way. Don't go on the crooked path. Yashar means right and correct what's appropriate and proper and pleasing. Now, because I'm calling the justice of God a love story, I wrote a little poem, a little Valentine's poem. Roses are red, violets are blue. The justice of God is right for you. His, just, his judging is perfect. His judgments are good. We will be blessed if we do what we should. So that sums it up. I asked you in your workbook if you love the justice of God. And I hope through this Bible study on justice and mercy that you'll begin to really ponder and think about and learn more about the justice of God and, and begin to understand it more and love it. I'm trying to come to a better, deeper understanding of the justice of God. God's justice is much more than his wrath on sin. But it does include his wrath on sin. It's just more than that. God does what is right. He makes the right decisions. He judges obedience as good, and he rewards obedience. He judges sin as bad and he punishes that and we usually just go to that part of God's justice so get the broader understanding of God's justice 
and know that God's justice is dependable, is dependable. He is faithful, always. He always does what is right. He always, in eternity past, did what was right. In our present, he does what is right. In eternity future, he will do what is right. He's outside of time, so there is no <laughs> difference in any of it to him. And now, in the love story of the justice of God, I want to consider our salvation. The justice of God the Father rewarded the perfect obedience of Jesus the Son. Think about that. God knew that his son Jesus could and would walk on the earth in perfect obedience to God's mishpat. He knew that Jesus could come to earth and walk in perfect justice and righteousness. So Jesus was chosen by God to be our Savior and King. Chosen. That's anointed. That's Mashiach. The Messiah. The Christ. Every one of those words is parallel to each other. Christ is Greek. Messiah is Hebrew. It's from Mashiach, which means anointed, which means chosen. So I'm just circling around with those words. Jesus was chosen by God to be our Savior and King. There was no one else who could do what he did in his first coming to earth. And there is no one else who can do what he will do in his second coming to earth. Jesus is the one and only. And we need him because he's the one and only who can do what he did and what he will do. In God's amazing plan, the one who lived in glory, Jesus, the one who lived in inapproachable light and in perfect communion with God the Father, came and took on flesh. He, God the Son, became the son of man, so that he could die the death of man and suffer the wrath of God against all our sins. God the Son, who was already promised the crown and the throne and the rule of the world, he was already chosen to be the king. He came as a man, unknown, under the radar, he came as a servant. He came to be treated as a criminal by men and by God. Jews and Gentiles rejected him. They did not receive him as their king. He already was the king, but they didn't receive him that way. And God turned his face away from him when he hung on the cross. Why? Because of the justice of God. You know this part of the story. I think that we will respect and be in awe of our God even more if we recognize that God's justice brought about our salvation. It's, it's hard. Hard to comprehend all of this, to grasp it. But it is true. God's justice rescued us from the eternal. Served. 
So it would have been right. It is right for those who rebel against the Lord and who stay in rebellion against the Lord to receive eternal death. And those who do not yield themselves to the Lord and his salvation will suffer that. But how can we say that God was just when he made Jesus the sinless one suffer in our place? This really makes our head spin. How is that right for the sinless one to take the wrath in our place? Jesus did not deserve it. So consider this, first of all, God's justice requires payment for sin. God's justice requires correct, appropriate punishment for sin. God's standard for all eternity is that sin brings death, death, separation from God. Death is the payment for sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Every person born on earth has the judgment of sin on him for, from their very first breath. And they are condemned for not believing in Jesus as Savior. John 3.18 says, He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Well, we get that part of God's justice on the cross. We understand as much as we can that payment for sin had to be made. And now consider this. As we're wrestling with this question, how can we say that God was just when he made the sinless one suffer in our place? Justice was carried out by Jesus himself when he accepted God's plan to be the substitute Jesus, loving good and hating evil, did what was good and unselfish. That is carrying out justice. Jesus loved God's justice. He accepted God's law that sin must be paid for, and he said he would make that payment. That is Jesus loving what is good and exhibiting his love for people. So the following verses on your handout show us that Jesus loves justice. He loves doing what is right for people. And again, the basis of doing what is right is love. Matthew twenty twenty eight: The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. To serve, to give himself these other verses say that as well. John ten eleven. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Shepherd gives his life for the sheep. John fifteen thirteen. No one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. This was voluntary on Jesus' part. Galatians 1, 3 and 4. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, and he did this according to the will of our God and Father. Gave himself. Ephesians 5.2 tells us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Titus 2.14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all 
lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a special people eager to do good works. Doing justice is doing good works. Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ is the one who loves us and has set us free from our sins at the cost of his own blood. The author of Hebrews shows us the obedience of Jesus to his Father's will and shows us his resolute intention. He determined to come and obey and give himself and carry out the will of God and give his body on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for sins. So you have Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, which says, Therefore, as he was coming into the world... He said, this is Jesus saying, quoting a psalm, you did not want sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. So Jesus is acknowledging, recognizing that God has given him a body of flesh to offer. And Jesus says, see, I have come. It is written about me in the volume of the scroll. I've come to do your will, O God. Jesus came to obey the Lord's will, doing what was right. He did not hang on the cross and think, I don't deserve this. Well, how do we know that? Look at what he said before, the day before. Jesus' perspective at the Last Supper, Luke twenty-two nineteen. He took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Luke twenty two twenty. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this, is, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. Consider that this is the justice of Jesus. He is carrying out what he knows is right and good and best. And he's doing it in love for us. He gave himself as a substitute, accepting and agreeing with God's justice, with God's requirement. Now, remembering once again that God's justice rewards what is good and punishes what is bad. Let's see the reward that Jesus received for obeying the will of God and giving himself as a substitute. Hebrews 2.9. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. God's justice rewarded Jesus for his obedient sacrifice of himself. We have God's justice. We have God's love. We have Jesus' love of God's justice. And we have Jesus' love for us. All of this is what saves those who accept the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. And all of this is what gives the saved a happy ever after. Salvation is what provides that happy ever after. The fullest, happiest ever after will come in the eternal state. That's what we saw in our homework called the world to come. And that's the time when all sin and evil will have been finally dealt with. Satan will not be coming out again. He will be totally uh, stuck <laughs> in the lake of fire. But 
in Christ right now, our happy ever after has begun. And we have sneak previews of it right here, right now on earth today. We have sneak previews of our happy ever after because we have peace with God and we have joy in our salvation. Israel has the promises of happy ever after. They will get those sneak previews during the millennial kingdom. When the nation of Israel recognizes Jesus, recognizes their rejection of Jesus and their sin, they will ask for forgiveness and know him as their savior. We've seen Jesus, the breaker, will come to rescue Israel. And the sneak previews of the eternal state will begin to happen on earth. So the millennial kingdom is still a sneak preview. It's going to be great, but it's a sneak preview of the best, <laughs> the happiest, happily ever after and after and ever and ever. During the millennial kingdom, Jesus will come again to do the will of God, reigning as king over the world and reigning with justice. Because the leaders of Micah's day abhorred justice, the Lord emphasized for his people that one day there would be a king who loves justice and they would have that king. Micah 4, 1 through 8 highlights the blessings of justice under the reign of King Jesus and this promise and this hope begins, Micah 4, 1, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And I love the beautiful picture that that is, but the best part of this is coming. It shall be lifted up above the hills and the peoples shall flow to it. People from all over the world, peoples and nations will flow to the house of the Lord. That is the most beautiful thing that we can see there. There will be so much peace and joy, so much happiness when Jesus reigns on earth. But that happiness is only for those who know Jesus as their Savior. Those who don't know him will not enter that. They won't enter the millennial kingdom. Remember, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That will be true. Still, when Jesus returns, when he returns, he will judge those who reject him. He will carry out God's justice on the wicked, unbelieving people who have stood against Jesus during the tribulation and who have stood against the Jews. And being against the Jews will be evidence that they are also against Jesus and they're not faithful to God. There are some specific judgments in Scripture described and it's my understanding that these will take place during the 75 day interval which follows Jesus return so seven years of tribulation Jesus comes back 75 days and then the millennial kingdom will really truly begin in all of its joy and grandeur where do we get this 75 days let's do a little math Revelation 12:6 told us that Israel would flee from the Antichrist and be in the wilderness for 1260 days. 12 I'm saying that right, 1260 days. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be fed there for 1260 days. 
And Daniel 12, 11 and 12 says, From the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1290 days. This is not a clerical error. This is really a different number. And blessed is the one who waits for and reaches 1335 days. Okay, 1260 days equals three and a half years. So that's the second half of the tribulation. 1290 days is 30 days beyond the end of the tribulation. And the blessing comes for those who reach, attain, remain to 1,335 days. That's 45 more days. So 1,260 plus 30 plus 45 gives you 1,335. 30 and 45, 75. That's where the 75-day interval comes from. Now, I have read what... I'm looking forward to calling my friend, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. <laughs> I'll meet him probably in the, well, uh, at Rapture. He, unless I get in touch with him before then, that would be fun too. <clears throat> Here's what he says happens during the interval. The removal of the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist is resurrected. The Antichrist and false prophet are cast alive into the lake of fire. Satan is bound into the abyss. There's the judgment of the living Gentiles, the sheep and goat judgment. That's the judgment of the living Gentiles. Resurrection of Old Testament saints, resurrection of tribulation saints. These are things that we know will happen. And based on his evaluation, and he's not the only one, I'm reading other people. They are putting these things right before the millennial kingdom. King Jesus will carry out God's justice from his first moments on earth. And he will do it through the 75-day interval, and then as he reigns during the millennial kingdom, he will carry out the justice of God forever. Now I'm going to share Fruchtenbaum's explanations a little bit of these events. Number one, the removal of the abomination of desolation. So during the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist will set up in the temple some type of image of himself. And that's what is called the abomination of desolation. And that image remains in the temple during the second half of the tribulation. It desecrates it. And based on Daniel 12:11, this image remains in the temple for 30 days after Jesus' return. I d there's no explanation as to why or what's going to happen, but... It will eventually. And I think somebody's going to really enjoy smashing it. <laughs> Don't know who's going to get that um, pleasure. It will be destroyed. The Antichrist will be resurrected. Why does he need to be resurrected? Well, 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, The lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. That's his death at Jesus' arrival. Jesus, The Antichrist is a human. He will be killed by Jesus. But we're also told that the Antichrist and false prophet are cast alive into the lake of fire. Revelation 19.20, the beast, that's the Antichrist, was taken prisoner along with him, the false prophet, who had performed signs on his authority by which he deceived those who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. 
So they don't get a rapture of a glorious body to go to heaven. They get a resurrection of a, a body, an eternal body that will be cast into the lake of fire. And that is their final place. Number four, the humbling and binding of Satan into the abyss. Revelation 21 through 3, you know this part of the story. I saw an angel coming down from heaven with the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for 1,000 years. So he's bound in the abyss. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, put a seal on it, so he would no longer deceive the nations until 1,000 years were completed. 1,000 years, that's the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom. Jesus is reigning. Nations, people, humans who can be deceived will not be deceived by Satan because he will be in the abyss. And after that, he must be released for a short time. Short time. It will be short. And then he will be no more. Number five, judgment of the living Gentiles. This is the sheep and goat judgment that Jesus talks about in Matthew 25, one, um, 31 through 46. I haven't given you the whole passage, but Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd shep separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then there's an explanation in the middle of this passage of what these people did and why they are sheep. They are the ones who have ministered to Jesus' brothers. They feed the hungry. They clothe the naked. They visit those in prison. And... They're saying, when did we do that to you? And he's, whenever you did that to my brothers. Matthew 25, 41, he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These are Gentiles who are judged for their behavior toward the Jews. That's what's described in that whole passage. The sheep are the Gentiles who helped the Jews to that Daniel was referring to who will be blessed because they remain to the 1335th day. I've been wondering about that for a while and I'm happy to have had Dr. Fruchtenbaum give me a, a clue. That's his understanding of it. Number six, resurrection of Old Testament saints. Some commentators say that Old Testament saints will be resurrected at rapture some say they will be resurrected after the tribulation. That is what Fruchtenbaum sees. And Daniel 12, 2 is referring to the resurrection of the Old Testament saints after the tribulation. Daniel 12, 1 and 2 says, There will be a time of distress such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to eternal life and some to shame and eternal contempt. So there's an angel speaking to Daniel and he says, your people. So Daniel is an Israelite. Your people are and your people who are found written in the book. This is the book of life. And those will awake some to eternal life. 
So that is what we're seeing as the resurrection of Old Testament saints. The context of Daniel is the time of distress, tribulation, after tribulation. Those who will awake to eternal contempt will awake at the great white throne judgment. That is the resurrection of the wicked. So even though Daniel 2 doesn't say to our minds and in words that we might want to see like, and there's a pause between the resurrection of these people and these people. When, when we look at all of these verses that scripture gives us, um, that's the way we're understanding this puzzle to be put together. So Old Testament saints resurrected when Jesus returns and they get to serve their people and serve alongside of us during the millennial kingdom time period. Then resurrection of tribulation saints, Revelation 24. John also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of God's word who had not worshipped the beast or his image, who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with the Messiah for 1,000 years. So that one's pretty clear. Tribulation martyrs, those who died during the tribulation, believers who died during the tribulation are resurrected, and that's when they're getting their glorified body and serving alongside us who are glorified in our glorified bodies and Old Testament saints who are in their glorified bodies. So there are two types of people, if we can call them people, there are those who have died and been resurrected and have glorified bodies. And there are those who are in their human mortal bodies like you're walking around in right now. Two different types of people during the millennial kingdom. Those who have been resurrected, who have glorified bodies, are said to reign. And that reigning is probably serving. So we will probably be serving and ministering to and sharing and teaching with those who are in their human bodies. When the 75-day interval is completed and Jesus has done everything that he wants to do in that time, if we understand that these things taking place then and, and there's more to do because the earth has been made a mess through the tribulation, uh, the millennial kingdom, the happy ever after for Israel will begin. The justice of God and the love of God will be poured out through Jesus the Messiah. Believing Jews and believing Gentiles will live on the earth in earthly bodies and they will see the impact of the reign of King Jesus on the earth. What a difference it will make. They will have seen like you see right now today what's going on. And if you then live, not you, <laughs> but those who become believers during the tribulation see everything that is so bad during that tribulation. And then they will see what a difference they will enjoy. It will be a wonderful time of blessing on the whole earth 
very specifically the land of Israel. And there will be blessings among all the people of the earth. As babies are born and children grow up, they, too, will learn of the love story of the justice of God. They, too, will learn that Jesus gave himself as a substitute for them. They could go and meet Jesus, but they'll have to travel to Israel if they want to see him. Or I guess he could go and visit them. But they will need to know and believe of what he has done by faith. God's grace and God's Holy Spirit will be working to bring about salvation. They who are born during the Millennial Kingdom will learn that their happy ever after will come from trusting Jesus as their Savior. In Micah 4.8, the Lord says to Jerusalem, You, the citadel of God's people, your royal might and power will come back to you again. The kingship will be restored to my precious Jerusalem. He loves his people. We know that we have a God of love. We know that we have a king who loves us. And there is no conflict between his love and his justice. There are many more wonderful things to learn about on regarding the last days on earth as we know it right now. A thousand years is a long time, so we're going to have more lessons in Micah looking at that time period, considering God's promises for the time to come. And we will enjoy those so much. It's a delight to look at what God has promised, and he will keep his promise. Let that help you and give you hope during the hard times right now. That's all for today. I'm Elizabeth Ficken. Thanks for studying the Bible with me.